You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Catula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org and be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Joan Maloof, Professor Emeritus at Salisbury University, founded the Old Growth Forest Network to preserve, protect, and promote the country's few remaining stands of old growth forest. She spends her time lecturing, writing, visiting forests, assisting private landowners, and supporting local groups trying to protect community forests from development. She's the author of Teaching the Trees, Among the Ancients, Nature's Temples, and most recently, The Living Forest. Today I talked to Joan about the Old Growth Forest Network, her definition and infectious love of old growth forests, and how our listeners can get involved on the ground identifying and protecting old growth forests where you live. I asked Joan to start with the background on Old Growth Forest Network and its mission. Jack, I was working on my second book. It was called Among the Ancients. And for that book, I was traveling to one old growth forest in each of the eastern states. So the 26 states east of the Mississippi River. And I was out there on the road, sometimes by myself for long periods of time, driving from one little patch of old growth forest to the next. And it became so real to me how much of our landscape had been denuded of forests over the centuries. And that these little pockets that are left were still threatened in some cases. And also the the forests that had been recovering from that first early cut was not being protected as something special because it had been cut already. So it wasn't old growth. So nobody Mm. was giving it the opportunity to go back. So it was on those trips, hundreds of miles between these remnants that I realized that this nation needed an organization that would speak out for these older forests and leave more older forests for the next generation instead of less. I get excited when I see one big old tree um, in among trees and areas that have been cut for a long, long time, and they just seem to have left one or two. What does, uh, what does an old growth forest, what does it have to be in terms of acreage or in size in general for you to consider it an old growth forest? I'm sure it's not just one lone wolf tree <laughs> like I see a lot here in Indiana. One tree does not a forest make. Yes. <laughs> as you talk to a lot of conservation biologists, you know that the bigger the better. You know right. that are organisms that need many hundreds of acres, or and then there are organisms that only need a few acres. So um, we don't have an exact size criteria, but for example, there is a 14-acre forest in Maryland on the eastern shore that is true old growth. Never been cut. Giant trees of every kind. Has the beautiful feel and smell when you walk through it. That's the one that I wrote about in my first book, Teaching the Trees. 
But is that an old growth forest? Well, we're calling it that just so people will get some idea. We're looking for forests that um, either have never been logged or ha have been logged so long ago, hundreds of years ago, that they've recovered and we really can't tell that they were ever cut at one point in the past. I know this is going to bum me out a little bit, but do you have an acreage estimate um, east of the Mississippi um, of how much old growth forest remains? Mm -hmm. It's going to bum you out for sure because it's about 1%. 1%. 1%. And we didn't even know that until the 1990s. It was a matter of... Um, it was John Davis, actually, who was sitting around with some of his buddies around a campfire and said, how much Eastern old growth is left? And they realized that nobody had an answer to that question. And John said, well, my mother, Mary, is a good researcher. I'm going to put her on that. And Mary Bird Davis just started calling every state in the East every person in the know. And she's the one that compiled all the figures in her old growth in the East survey. And she's the one that um, gave us the estimate of 1%. It's, it's kind of um, a different world. I mean, that's just a recognition of waking up to um, something that's already gone. That's just gone. Do you have other criteria for, you know, second stage, or I'm not sure what the terminology would be, but um, forests that are very old that may not be old growth. I mean, is there anything that helps to buffer that little tiny 1%? Yes. So with the organization that I started to protect these ancient forests, the Old Growth Forest Network, we realized that we were not going to be able to find even one old growth forest in each county of the US. So the mission of the Old Growth Forest Network is to identify one ancient forest in each of the counties, at least one that's protected from logging and open to the public. And the idea is so that people can experience these forests and know what they look like because otherwise with 1% left, they're difficult to find. So um, what we do now is in each of these counties, we look for old growth at first and, and that's ideal, but if there is no old growth left in a county, then we focus on what's next, okay? The oldest forest. So many of the forests in our network now are second growth forests, but we make that very clear. And the vision is that now we are going to let them recover. And in the future, they will become old again for people to see and experience. What are some of the characteristics of these forests that um, people should expect? You know, I, I imagine that everybody is aware that they must be old, but we're not really sure what old means. Uh, anymore. So like, what, what's it feel like to be in one of these? What should, what should be in an old growth forest? Um, well, it varies depending on where the forest is and the forest type, of course. So I'm sure you've been to see the redwoods mm. and 
seen the trees that are over a thousand years old and you know when you step into one of those forests that you are in an old growth forest. Well, in the East, it's not so easy because people will expect giant trees like in a redwood forest, but it's not that obvious. And it's not even always about the diameter of the trees because you could have trees in an old growth forest that are no wider than you know, your neighbor's maple or oak tree, but that tree could be two or 300 years old. And we tell, um, it's very subtle. <laughs> and it grew on me over the years of visiting all of these old growth forests to realize the characters. One of the things I look for is the unique crown structure in an ancient tree. So although the diameter may not be that huge, I'm looking up in the crown and I'm seeing fewer branches. The branches don't have these classic V shapes like you would draw in third grade. Instead, they'll have fewer branches and the branches that they do have are much wider and they take these turns, we call it sinuosity, they're kind of wiggly and they'll go this way and that way. And the reason those crowns look like that is because that tree has been standing in place for hundreds of years and the forest has changed around it. So there will be a little, the little tree next door, let's say, <laughs> as as old mama stood there, the tree next door grew up and shaded her. She had to go in a different direction. And then the tree um, on the other side of her that even might've been more ancient fell down. So now she has more sunlight there. Something might've fallen across and broken her branches. So now she's given up that branch or the end of that branch and going this way. So the canopy crown structure is very unique. Also, I look for dead trees on the forest floor, which mm. to an ecologist is a very positive sign. Big, coarse, woody debris, that's what the ecologists call it. So if we have trees that have lived their full lifespan and now they've fallen over and now they're decaying on the forest floor, maybe for as long as it took them to grow, then that shows that that forest hasn't been disturbed in a long time and those dead trees add to the richness, ecological richness. There are other signs too, like trees that have blown over and create this pit and mound structure. Um, one of the indicators I look for is not just one dominant large tree, you know, not all oak or all beech or all maple, but you're standing in a forest and you go, oh, look at that oak tree. You know, that's a beauty, that's a big trunk. That has the balding bark that that's another indicator that is on very ancient trees. And then six feet away, there could be a huge beech tree. And then another, um, you know, 10 feet over here is a big maple tree. So you're standing back and you're seeing large trees of different species. And that's a sign to me too. So we add all these little signs come together and if there's, um, you know, a historian willing to help, sometimes then they can go back into the paperwork and 
and say, yes, you know, people were talking about this forest in 1906 and talking about it was mature and beautiful then. So we add up all these clues and we can say, okay, yes, this, this is an old growth forest. What about wildlife? What are some of the things like you've gone through with the trees? The, I would imagine that the oldness of the forest, the bigness, the thickness of it also is, um, you know, prime habitat for certain species. Are there certain keystones that you look for? I know it's dependent upon the area of the country that you're in. Excellent question. And we keep in mind, of course, that there are some species that like open and full sun, whether you're talking about um, mammals or flowers or birds. And then there are other species that like the deep, dark forest with the cavities. Again, whether you're talking about mammals or, or plants or birds. So we like to recognize that we want to keep all the species and um, all the all the piece pieces to the puzzle so we need all types of habitat so um i kept hearing from the forestry industry that forests need to be managed to be healthy have you heard that <laughs> well yes i was i was inventorying all the things you mentioned earlier that need to apparently be raked um <laughs> now uh according to our right. your leader um yeah. and i'm like i don't know how this works and those are some awfully big rakes um but those trees are pretty big and those are all apparently a really big problem laying all over the forest floor yes what a waste so the forest industry would often say forests need to be managed to be healthy whether we're talking about public forests or private forests and this frustrated me because I knew that there were many species that could only live in unmanaged forests or live better or were more abundant in the unmanaged forests. So I decided to write a book. This was my third book called Nature's Temples. And the subtitle is The Complex World of Old Growth Forests. My working title was What Science Says About Old Growth, because what I did for that book, I dove into the scientific literature and any scientist, whether he or she had compared an unmanaged forest, that would be an old growth unlogged forest, to a managed forest, so we're talking about something that had been cut on a rotation or even thinned, and whether they studied mosses or fungi or mammals or you know snails what did those scientists find so that was my research my basis for the book and what they found over and over again was that there are some species that are more abundant in the old growth forest and there are some species that, that are only found in the old growth forest now I'm, I call those the indicator species. You know, oh, if you're in that forest and you find that thing, then you know it's old growth. That's what I was thinking when I went into it. I thought, oh, we're going to get these indicator species. Well, they did name these species only found in old growth forests that are indicator species. But Jack, you and I, not even you and I are going to be able to walk into that forest and tell that particular black ground beetle from the other 
356 that looked just <laughs> like it, or that fungi, you know, from the other 250 are in the that are in the forest. You know, you and I are going to know the top 20, but we're probably not going to recognize that rare one. In the same way with the snails, and the same way with the little lichens. So instead of um, yeah, save the old forest for this particular snail or mushroom. I have come to look at it like the big package, like save these old forests because they are higher in biodiversity when the forests are untouched. And we know we're in a biodiversity crisis. So we need to save these places for these little things that we might not even be able to identify unless we're a specialist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we lost so much of it before we ever had a chance to um, know that much. And I guess deriving any sort of meaning from yeah. uh, 1%, you know, we may not even have enough in the biggest places that are left to really make that sort of determination. At this point, I think your approach is the only real the logical one <laughs> because we're just really shooting in the dark for a lot of this stuff. Nobody ever had a chance to really study this stuff. And right. We have no idea what it's like to live with mountain lions or, or wolves and even bears that are still around. We think of them as hibernating in caves. Well, they used to hibernate in the hollows of trees when trees were big enough to hold them. You know, now yeah. we we don't even, it's so rare to see something like that anymore. And things like the fishers and the, you know, the wolverines and the martins. Um, yeah, there are many of those um, wild animals that we even argue about whether we need the forest because we don't, because maybe we see them in younger forests, even though they prefer the older forests. Well, so tell me a little bit about what, what do we do with all these little tiny pieces? Because I know that that 1% in the East doesn't exist in one place. It's an amalgam of a bunch, a bunch of tiny little places. Um, I'm sure. I, I know that in Indiana, if I, I want to look at your map at your website um, and everyone listening, the website link will be below wherever you're listening to this. So you can check it out too. Um, but I know that the places that I've been are really, really small. How do you factor all of that in? And how does that work with um, what wildlands and rewilding work on with connecting up and corridors and wildways and things? Mm -hmm. Yes, excellent question. Because um, I'm an ecologist. So I knew when I set out to start an organization that was going to save these little patches of old forest here and there, that these forests were never going to be able to contain their full complement of biological diversity in the way that a larger wild area would. So I questioned myself <laughs> the same way you questioned me. It's like, why bother with these little patches that are surrounded by cornfields, let's say in Indiana, yeah. which is the case in many places. And my thought process was that it's not just saving the forests and the biodiversity that they still contain albeit from the smaller creatures, 
but it's also connecting humans with our landscape. Do humans have any idea of what the land looked like before we took it over, before we started cutting the forest, before we converted those forests to agricultural fields or subdevelopment, subdivision developments. So these patches are opportunities to let humans experience a little bit of it and to use their imaginations, to bring them to a spot and say, did you know that 95% of your landscape used to look like this? Did you know other forests in our area can look like this again if we let them recover? And with these big wild ways that are so important, I also realized that the average child might never get to see one of these wilderness areas because they're many miles away and they have to have an interested adult to take them. Many adults never even get to see the larger wilderness areas where the animals can live more comfortably. So I realized that we need both things. We need people working on the wilderness and the wild ways and the rewilding, but we also need people like me and organizations like the Old Growth Forest Network that are trying to connect and reconnect people with the natural landscape. It really, this discussion is bringing up a lot of things that I hadn't considered in a while or ever, really. When you are studying and mapping and interviewing people who are on the ground doing all kinds of different wildlands work, wild ways, um, wilderness protection, you're absolutely right. These places are very difficult to get to. I would love myself, as an interested adult, uh, to have shown my son a heck of a lot more by now, he's 12, than mm -hmm. I have. And it's just a matter of distance. Um, these places are really hard to get to, uh, some of them. And some of the ones that I really want to go to are really um, going to take some planning, and you got to have a lot of time off. So, yes, most people are not going to be exposed to that. And it also occurred to me as you're talking that the majority of people, because we are really interested in this stuff and we study this stuff, I start to forget what, what does the average person even know about old growth and wilderness. And, um, and a lot of times you don't even get that experience in a national park because roads are so prevalent and infrastructure and everything really throws off how how you feel in a real old growth situation a real wilderness situation that you know it's almost like the comparison to to disneyland comparatively and some of the parks are so overrun you can't get away from people um so even there people aren't getting the experience and, and it occurs to me as we try to talk about issues like half earth and um, really big, big networks of connected wildways, wildlands, um, who we are talking to may not even have a, the ability to grasp what we're talking about. Therefore, how do we engage those people in the effort, in such a grand effort in modern human history 
<clears throat> nothing bigger has ever been talked about. And, uh, and it makes me wonder, it makes me worry that if there aren't a lot of people out there like you showing people any and everything that can possibly show, be shown to them in their area, um, that our message could fall on deaf ears because there are people who think cornfields are part of a natural landscape at this point almost. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say, but if that's their experience, that's their experience. No, it's so true. And I used to teach at the university and my students, I could see some of them wake up and and they said, oh, you know, I drive down the road and I see all these trees. And I thought that that was pristine nature. They thought trees only got as large as the trees they're seeing. So it's the shifting baselines concept. People don't even know what the original forests look like. So that's why we want to show them in these small places where we can. And also, um, I give a lot of talks and I always stress that we can save as many wild lands as we want right now, or we can save as many forests as we want. But if we're not also creating, I'm not sure if that's the word, but building a generation that will look after these places after us, then all our work might be for naught. So we can save all these forests, but next generation could say, oh, you know, why do we care about them? And they could go away. So we need to do the two things together. And how do we build that generation is by getting them out to see, to understand, to appreciate. So for the Old Growth Forest Network, one of our criteria is that the forest has to be relatively accessible. We like places where grandparents and grandchildren can go together. I mean, I was born when a lot of that 1% was the only thing left. I mean, <laughs> it was probably pretty close to that already in the East. And, um, and I start to wonder as you talk how much my idea of everything in the East has been affected um, just because I grew up in a time where I wasn't able to just quickly or easily get to a place of, that was big and magnificent. You know, we don't have a lot of national, the closest national park to us is the Smokies. Um, that, that is of an, any note. And I am a really, really biased because I lived in the West. I lived in Albuquerque for most of the nineties and I was exposed to big and wonderful and grand, uh, the Gila wilderness, the first wilderness and, and just, you know, so I was a snob. As soon as I crossed the Mississippi, I feel a drop in energy. And it was just a psychological thing, I'm sure. But also, I was aware now. I'd read um, Dave and Howie's book, um, Big Outside. And I, I looked at the maps. And when it's, the further east you go, the more depressing it gets as far mm -hmm. as, you know, when you're comparing them to those great big places. And so, you know, I wonder that if we don't do a good job with this education thing, that some generation in the future is going to go, there were cornfields here. We need to protect and bring those back. <laughs> because their experience is that's what was old and that's what was precious or any of the other things. Um, and it can happen so quickly just in my generation, I think, uh, just about my own experience, how much it's affected me as well. Uh, do you work with other organizations? Like how big is, is, is the old growth army? We like to say we are not just a network of forests. We're a network of people who care about forests. That's our message. And in our work, 
we are working with all different landowners. So we could be federal government, state governments, local governments, nature conservancy, uh, universities, camps, land trusts, state organizations. So it's so beautiful to be able to look across a county and say, okay, of all of these different ownerships of these forests that are open to the public, which is the highest quality? And so we find ourselves working with all these different organizations, depending on the forest that we're putting in the network. And then their friends of group usually like to be part of that. And our organization itself is very tiny. We only have two full-time employees, but we try to get a volunteer, we call it a county coordinator in each county. And that's the person that's out there looking for the best forest for the network. And we advise them on that and work with them on that. So we have 200 volunteers out there looking for the best forest in their county. And here's a commercial break. So if anybody is interested in being a county coordinator for your county, we welcome you to sign up with us at the Old Growth Forest Network website. So there are hundreds of those people, but then we also have thousands of people that have signed up to be part of this network of people that care about old forests. And we stand together. So if any of these ancient forests are threatened, it is my hope that we're just another layer of protection for that forest and that we will all work together to say, no, this is a network forest. This is not being cut down. I think one of the reasons might be that we've gotten down to such a small amount of old growth is people take these little pieces and they go, what does it matter? And right. I think we, I think we, what does it matter to ourselves down to that 1%? And there, there has to be somebody like you out there telling people why it matters because otherwise we could easily chew through the rest of the 1% as well with that attitude of, I'm sure there's more old growth somewhere else, or I don't even know what old growth is and one, what could another acre of trees really hurt. That's exactly right. There was a, um, a small forest that was in the heart of a town here in Maryland, right in the middle of the city, surrounded by subdivisions, but it was a true old growth forest. Another one of these small patches, but it was owned by a developer and the developer had no idea that it was ancient forest or didn't really care. The trees were in the way. The local planning board and politicians, they didn't care because the forest wasn't paying any property tax. <laughs> I mean, property tax was on the parcel, but they were going to get a lot more tax once this became 92 townhomes. And you can witness things like that happening where just maybe the last old parcel in that town and people just don't realize it. So we also are trying to be a service to folks and communities all across the country who are dealing with threatened forests like that, that are trying to educate and open the eyes of their local planners and politicians and, and developers. And we're right now putting together something we call how to save a forest toolkit to give those folks a place to get started. So we've, we've grown from just wanting to create a network, just right, a network mm -hmm. of thousands of forests across the country 
that are protected and open to the public. Now we're also trying to help with these threatened little parcels that are left. So you either could use a lot more help Mm -hmm. um, or the map is complete and it's a horrible, horrible picture. I'm hoping that I'm looking at the map and I'm, I'm just so happy. There's even one place in Indiana. It's (laughs) Wesselman woods nature preserve. Yes. Um, and, and, and that's, that's another, yeah, who's heard of that, but it's a beautiful ancient forest in the middle of this city in Indiana. And they didn't, even there, like they love their forest, but they didn't realize how rare that forest is. So wow. we bring attention to these places. So, the, yeah. But does that mean that everybody listening, who's all the people from Indiana who are listening right now, uh, which I hope will be a lot more soon. All my friends are. Um, and uh, hi, Sammy, my son, he's listening. So, but what do we do? I mean, I see a state that I know um, the Hoosier National Forest, and there is actually even a designated wilderness here, but I, but I already know the Charles C. Deem area is um, second growth. It's been cut over. In fact, the tops of the ridges were all farmland at one point or little farm patches, and it's in a recovery state. So it's not the kind of definition of wilderness that we all like, <laughs> the pristine original mm-hmm. stuff. Um, it even had a road going through it that's, um, you know, still apparent and you can still see where that road was. But I have to believe there's more old growth in this state. I just have to believe that. Does it, is it mean more boots on the ground, more people uh, out there with your kits signing up? And, and, um, and, and, well, and Jack, are you volunteering to be a county coordinator? And I think I have to. I think Yay. myself and Sammy are going to have to because... Yay. I just can't believe that that's the only place, although Sammy and I now have that on our list to go straight down to the very tip of Indiana and check out Wesselman Woods. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's, and, and, and the map is really, you know, it's heavy on the east and then there's California. It's, it's really light in the middle. So it looks like you need a lot of people helping in Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, Wyoming. Well, some of those prairie counties wouldn't have had forest. Right, right, right. But where so they do. That's why out of the over 3,000 counties in the U.S., about two-thirds of them, uh, 2,370 is my estimate, can support forest growth. So that's going to be the old growth forest network, one forest in each of those counties that can support forest growth. But for um, the map you're looking at that you're talking about is on our website, but that map is only the forests that we have already dedicated into the old growth forest network. So there are more parcels of old growth than are on that map, but we just haven't gotten around to do dedications yet. Maybe we don't have a volunteer in that county, or maybe the old growth forest doesn't have full protection on it. And we're working with those folks to try to get protection. So for instance, in Indiana, there's Johnson Woods is another Mm -hmm. old growth forest. And um, Mary Bird Davis's survey tells about a few others. But in your county, so let's say you did volunteer to be the county coordinator, you and your son, you're going to work together. And this is to all your listeners, too, wherever they live. So the first task would be to just start looking around your county and asking questions. What is the oldest publicly accessible forest in my county? 
And maybe you haven't ever thought about that. But then you'll start, it's so fun. You start talking to people and visiting these places. And with the criteria of, um, doesn't have to be old growth, but as old as possible. So maybe it is that place in the national forest that you're talking about. And maybe that was looked at as nothing special, but it becomes special when we realize, guess what? It's the oldest piece, even though it's not original. So we're looking for as old as possible, open to the public, relatively accessible. Well, and then, I, what happens when people, so I want to empower people. I want to get people really excited about right, this. What, right. what I'm excited about is that I want to get my places, my special yes. places into your network and, yes. and tell me what that affords in any additional protections um, for those places. Well, it is the protection that I mentioned of the network of thousands of people saying this is our special forest in this place. Also, it um, we make sure that that forest does have protection. So in a lot of cases, let's say it's a place in a city like Wesselman Woods, it may be assumed that that forest has full protection, but when we start digging into it, in many cases, even the employees are surprised. They thought it was protected. They see that it's not. We point out that it needs to be. And so sometimes just getting into the network, that process puts extra protection. Then with the dedication, it's a celebration of that forest in the community and they recognize that it's unique and special in the nation. And there's a pride in that. And just having the, the press about that forest when we do the dedication um, can be a way to bring people together around that forest. Just draws attention to it mm -hmm. in a new in a new way. Mm -hmm. well, like we have the Hayes Arboretum here in town and they have um, extraordinarily old trees. Um, and uh, a benefactor, um, Louise Hayes, was excited enough about this many, many years ago to protect I don't know if the acreage is right. I don't know what the criteria is, but I want to start there because they've already been, you know, it's the Arboretum. They, they are already proud of it, but I would love for everybody here to be proud of it in a new way. Mm -hmm. That is part of a new, not a new, but new to us network. Um, and I know I could get a dedication here if it fits the criteria. It's very small and I I'm snobby. So I'm from, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm from the West. I grew up in Indiana, but I'm from the West. And so I don't know what big is here. I don't know what, you know, if big is, is that big of a deal as opposed to other factors, but I sure do want to know like immediately, like as soon as I can get my hands on your criteria, what is the status of that according to what you guys consider old growth and whether or not it fits the criteria. So that's well, and part of that, and that's why we need the people like you on the ground, because you may, you know, that's where it's a judgment call. You may have to say, well, the Arboretum, oh, it turns out it's true old growth, but it's only 14 acres and it costs $20 to get in <laughs> versus, you know, this other forest in the National Forest um, might be only 100 years old, but it's larger. And you know what? It feels more wild because that's when things are coming up kind of equal. I think to myself, what's going to get the young people as excited as, as quick as possible from when they leave their car to when they step into the forest. So what's going to feel wild 
to them. And um, that would be your call. And if you really think both of them should be in the network, we can also dedicate both of them. <laughs> There's a few counties we couldn't decide, so we, um, we put two in. That's not a problem either. I was kind of excited and kind of depressed at the same time coming up with the idea of just finding singular old trees, trees that had just managed to not be cut. And there were some efforts before I came back home from people to sort of loosely map out some, some extremely old trees in the area. And I can't remember what their criteria were, but this is better. This is better. This is more of a you know, this is almost, uh, you could gamify this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just already thinking of all the places I know of in Indiana that I want to look at again and, and through your filter, through mm -hmm. the old growth forest network filter, because I want to, I want to see how many things we have here and in that light. So that's really cool. And it should be, I think there's more people like me out there. You know of a lot of people who are already yes. oh, yes. very much like that. Oh, yes. It's, and it is fun. Like you said, you want to gamify it. I like that because it's fun. So uh, one of our volunteers lives in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And he said, oh, I want to look around my county. I want to do this. I want to find the forest. Well, he went with me on a walk to see another old growth forest in Philadelphia. So he got to see the criteria. He started looking around his county and he found that there was a patch, but beautiful of original old growth forest. And he invited me out there to see it. He talked to the land trust that owned it and we are gonna put that in the network. So I was talking to him yesterday and he said, Joan, he said, I'm a birder. He said, I'm, I always got my binoculars. I'm used to riding down the road and looking at these birds flying by back and forth. And what are they? He's like, well, you got me looking at trees and forests now. <laughs> he said, I'm riding down the road and I'm thinking, how old is that forest? Look at that canopy structure yeah. there. <laughs> and I, I love that. It's just that awareness and that education. Which brings me to, um, including your books, especially Nature's Temples, what are some other things we've already talked about? Everybody needs to get over to oldgrowthforest.net um, and find out how you can help on the ground in your area. Um, what are some other things that people can do to help save and restore old growth forests? I like the idea of looking around in your community where you are, and you might know that there's a beautiful old forest there, but start asking questions about it. Who owns it? Is it protected? Just have conversations about the forest and speak for them. Um, in my community, we're going to have a hearing about a future park that's going to happen the day after tomorrow, and I'm going to be there speaking for the trees, and it would be awfully nice if there were other people there speaking for the trees, too. So things like that. If you, if you can't help directly with the organization, be a county coordinator, you can always donate to organizations such as the Rewilding Institute, Wellens Network, the Old Growth Forest Network, to help us be able to um, continue to live while we're doing our work and speaking for the trees. Lorax-ing. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. Sammy and I always verb it, make it a verb and we just go Loraxing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. that is really true. That's really great. A lot of people, um, you know, I think can do all of these things. None of them are hard. None of these things are, well, I'm only going to donate because I can't go. There's none of that here. And the other thing I'd like to highlight for listeners is this is a doing. This is not an organization that's sitting around and doing a lot of theoretical stuff or um, strictly just political things. And all of those things are necessary, but it's really nice to run into organizations that are really on the ground and are there more specifically to organize people all over the country to be on the ground, what to look for, how to do this, how to, how to bring a forest into the network. Um, this is rewilding. This is absolutely 100% of the definition of rewilding. And Joan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth today. And I would love to have you back. Uh, maybe we could even do a special episode one day in the future of the dedication of a new spot in Indiana. I would love that so much. And Jack, it's been great to talk to you. And if you just can't wait to get started... One place I would suggest is on our website, you can find Mary Bird Davis's old growth in the East survey and you that's for free. You can download it and check out your pages for Indiana and see, see what you got there. I'm going there right now. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Joan. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the rewilding earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.